This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open sourced Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at Sentry.io. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Eric Berry. Hey! Dave Kimura. Hey, everyone. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Um, real quick, I'm setting this up actually right now, but uh, I did actually... I've had a lot of people asking for t-shirts and mugs and stuff. So if you want a Ruby Rogues t-shirt or mug or something like that, go to swag.devchat.tv. Um, I have everything set up. I just need to set up the forwarding of that domain and it'll work by the time this comes out. But um, anyway, go to swag.devchat.tv and you can get all that stuff. We have a special guest this week and that's Rahul Mahale. Did I say that right? Hey, hi, Charles. Yes, that's right. Hi. Do you, want to, do you want to give us a brief introduction, who you are, why you're famous? Sure. Okay. Uh, I might not be the famous one. <laughs> okay, great. So I'm Rahul Mahale, uh, working as an infrastructure DevOps engineer at Big Binary. Uh, Big Binary is a uh, Ruby on Rails, Rails consult- consultant company. And I'm the guy over there to take care of deployments, automate uh, continuous integration, continuous deployment pipeline. And recently, for more than a year and or uh, close to two years, I've been busy deploying containers to production, deploying Rails app to production, uh, uh, um, to be more specific. And it's both fun and challenging while dealing with uh, distributed system like Kubernetes. And lately, we have started podcast series uh, in the Kubernetes ecosystem. And I, as time permits and as guests come and I keep interviewing a few of the podcast episodes on all things jobs, DougBigBinary.com. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, so all things DevOps, you want to give us just an elevator pitch on that podcast? Uh, yeah, that just started as an like a hobby thing at Big Binary. Initially, we just got some kudos from few of the colleagues or few of the friends that we have been doing a great work while deploying Rails into Kubernetes. So uh, one of our, uh, I mean, our CEO Neeraj Singh suggested that why not just get started your discussion into podcast. Uh, one fine day, we just recorded it rough and everyone said like it went well. So we decided to do it more often internally. After three, four podcasts, uh, then we started inviting guests. And from then, it became more of like a professional podcast uh, channel. So I've interviewed a few of the guys like Rancher co-founder William Shannons. Then I also had a chance to talk with Kelsey Hightower from Google, Joe Beda from Heptio. And lately, I talked with Brendan Burns from Microsoft, who are all like uh, uh, topmost contributors or 
or the personalities which are doing most of the weightlifting work in Kubernetes and ecosystem. So it's not much like a scheduled uh, podcast, but as and when we have guests and a good content, we just jump in and record it. That's awesome. I love seeing people uh, get in and yeah, create podcasts and just talk about this stuff. I mean, it helps the entire community to have it out there. So, you know, kudos to you for that. So yeah, so uh, let's let's talk about Kubernetes. I'm I'm curious with the rest of the panel. I really haven't done much with Kubernetes. I've played with Docker plenty, but Kubernetes not so much. So have the rest of you played with Kubernetes? Yeah, I've had experiences with uh, Kubernetes. It's a funny story. So actually, so last week, Friday, uh, I've been running CodeFund on Heroku for a long time. And we run into this issue where all of a sudden our data, databases are, are going a bit slower and we're seeing some response time degradation, all that kind of stuff. So I'm like, okay, well, we got to upgrade our database. So Heroku is incredible, right? But they're, they're costly. You know, they're great for the intro, but once you start growing, they get more and more costly. So I thought, okay, well, why don't we move? Every, why don't we start moving things over to AWS? Because I know that we're going to likely, or at least at the time, I believe we were, we were likely going to move everything over to uh, Amazon. So I do the. Uh, so what I did was I asked like the genius that works with me with Gitcoin, Mark Beacom, and he's the one who who runs all of uh, Kubernetes. And I said, hey, let's schedule a time where we could sit down and you can like show me how this thing works, right? So we do, we sit down, we talk, and uh, he starts showing me this stuff and it gets deeper and deeper and deeper where there's like config files left and right. And you got to understand all these things. And and about 30 minutes into this meeting, I'm like, screw this, right? <laughs> I don't know if I can I'm like, I'm like, no. So, <laughs> so I'm like, okay, you do it. And then he did it. Long story short, we ended up moving everything back to Heroku, but, but I was so overwhelmed by, and I don't know if it was the presentation or what, but I was so overwhelmed with how difficult it was to just launch a silly little website, right? Or, or put up a, a Postgres server. Now, that being said, we were using the Amazon, I think it's called EKS, uh, which is the... Uh, mm-hmm. uh, the Kubernetes uh, solution on Amazon, and they don't have as many good tools, uh, as good of an interface as Google does. But uh, that's been my experience. Have you guys also had any experiences with that? I haven't played with EKS. Me neither. And if I probably went the normal person's route for a Kubernetes instance, instead of hosting a half-baked one in my basement, then (laughs) I would probably have a much better experience with it. However, I don't like forking over hosting server money because I do have for my sandbox environment, uh, a couple of rack servers that you know I'm blessed to have. So I love tinkering with them. And I don't know if I would ever really trust Kubernetes for hosting a actual production instance, just because I like seeing that visibility of, I have these servers up, they're running, they're doing good, and whatever. It's also kind of why I don't like Docker for some instances, or for at least production instances. But uh, I think for development, testing, sandbox environments, you know, they're a godsend because you are able to mimic production-like instances without the overhead of having to spin up new servers or whatever 
uh, on the hosting provider that you have. So from those aspects, I think that they're really good. Personally, anything I host is usually on EC2 instances or Beanstalk in AWS. And I think that managing them has been very easy to do. And there's not been that much involved with it. And with the auto-scaling, I get a lot of the benefits of uh, not spending more than what I need on the servers. You know, servers will shut off as I need them or as the traffic dies down. So for me, a Kubernetes in a production environment hasn't really made any real justification. Whereas in a sandbox environment or during my development or even tying it into GitHub or GitLab to spin up a production-like environment on commits when you're going to do a test before you push it to production makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So I'd like to add a few more points uh, on the thoughts of that. Must be the case that, uh, yeah, and in fact, we all should agree that Kubernetes is complex to set up, configure, and maintain. So yeah, that work should be handed over to the cluster administrators like us who can create and provision a production-ready Kubernetes clusters. So yeah, uh, the, my latest talk uh, in the day of today's Cape Town was titled as Deploying Production-Ready Kubernetes Clusters and the lessons we learned at Big Binary. So that is one thing. But I think uh, running uh, Kubernetes in production is now fairly easy with managed services like EKS, the GKE from Google, AKS from Microsoft, and few more. Uh, if you are into Rails, even Cloud66 offers managed Kubernetes service. Also, uh, DigitalOcean is coming up with, and giant companies like Oracle, IBM do also support Kubernetes. So managing Kubernetes service, I think, is not a big deal at the moment, but we have to first dockerize our app in that way, which where we can deploy it into the most stable containerized orchestrator like Kubernetes. And I think once we have the pipeline set up, uh, I don't think nowadays it is much pain. But yeah, one has to spend a considerable amount of time when he is moving from traditional server architecture to the containerized architecture. And that's why I still see uh, the companies which are trying to give Kubernetes training, maybe Kubernetes or from Cloud Network Computing Foundation, their certifications, they are still in huge demand. So I think this is a full shift of one of the ecosystem and it will take time. But yeah, people have started thinking that Kubernetes is a future. Also, most recently, most of the serverless platform are being ported to Kubernetes. If you take a look at Fijin, if you take a look at Kubeless, which are serverless platform, but built upon on top of Kubernetes. So yeah, certainly I would still say it is much stable and production ready right now. So would you say that you you probably wouldn't recommend people to use Kubernetes unless they do have some sort of layer in between to help manage that or they have somebody who is well-versed? And what did you call them? A, uh, what was the term that you used to, to define that role of somebody who is managing that? Yes, definitely. Uh, I would say if uh, you are the developer and you are used to do Git push Heroku master, then I would not recommend someone 
who is completely into the development mode should go and configure Kubernetes cluster. Let's get that complex work, uh, work done by something called cluster administrators. So the, the CNCF, the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, which is, uh, I mean, the Kubernetes project, uh, project of CNCF, they have few certifications for cluster administrators called CKA, uh, or there are DevOps people or site reliability engineers who can manage the Kubernetes cluster and set up a pipeline. So in that case, when the developer has the clusters ready, the containerized pipeline ready, all he has to do is do git push and his deployment is deployed on cluster. So yeah, let's offload that complexity to some other team if to enterprise company. If you are uh, an individual or a, a team with small project, you can as a, hand over it to your SRE or DevOps guy who can manage the Kubernetes cluster. Yeah, and for the homebody people kind of like me who like to tinker around like and to, stuff. Sorry, sorry for interrupting. So, oh. so for uh, for local users, there's something called Minikube where yes. uh, it, it's just kind of brew install and few more commands and it just started uh, starts the kubernetes cluster on your local and uh, all the things you can do on production cluster can be done on your local and also there is something called boot cube as well so yeah if you want to just uh, explore it and get feel of kubernetes you can use minikube yeah i definitely have had my best experience with minikube i think that it's by far the easiest way to get going with it and essentially what it does is it uses virtual box to create all of the uh, the management node and then the actual uh, server nodes that the instances will get deployed to and the funny thing about that is when i first started uh, messing around with kubernetes i didn't realize that you actually had to have more than one machine that you had that to you have a node manager and then the actual other nodes so <laughs> I ended up like just scratching my head, like, why won't anything connect to this? Because you have to have multiple instances. And that's one of the things that Minikube will do for you is create multiple instances all for you. So you don't have to worry about that management to just kind of play around locally with the development. True. So Minikube uh, left all the pain of configuring Kubernetes cluster for you on local. Uh, yeah, behind the scenes, it uses VirtualBox because it needs, it has its own ISA image from which it build, it boots up the Minikube cluster. And I think that's fine. That's a good move uh, because not everyone can all the time uh, go and create or provision a Kubernetes cluster on cloud providers or it is not always the right way to go and use managed services. So yeah, I think Minikube has solved that problem of uh, using the Kubernetes on the local. So what kind of hardware requirements, if someone was wanting to play around with Minikube and Kubernetes on their local environment, would they really need to consider having? The standard hardware requirements are not much, but yeah, you do need good system, at least a couple of GB RAMs free. Uh, your machine should support virtualization as it runs VirtualBox image and all. And yeah, that's the only hardware consideration, I would say, like just good amount of memory and Docker pre-installed. And of course, good network spread so that you can pull and push images uh, quickly. 
And so the overhead from having the uh, Kubernetes, if you are talking about bare metal uh, servers, you do have that first virtualization layer with the virtual box that's going to run on top of if you're doing something like Minikube. So there will be a small performance hit there. But then when you add Docker on top of that layer, are we talking about like compounding performance hits? Or because it is, uh, Docker originally was based on LXC, Linux containers, so the overhead is more minimal. But are there going to be issues running virtualization on top of the virtualization on top of the bare metal? I think uh, let's uh, split this question in two parts. If there's a plain bare metal uh, server handed over to me, I'll definitely go and deploy Kubernetes directly on plain bare metal is using tools mm-hmm. like Cube ADM, Cube Spray, and there doesn't come Docker in picture because Kubernetes can use any container environment or container plugin. Either it can use Docker, it can use Rocket, it can use Container D. But when it comes to your local with Minikube, the most preferred choice is using Docker because Docker for Mac or Docker for Windows uh, it's easily installable, and people or most of the people in the community are still using Docker as a container uh, plugin or a container runtime. So let's say if you have bare metal, then just go and set up your Kubernetes cluster using KubeSpray, KubeADM, or uh, some other Kubernetes provisioning tool, and you are good to start uh, uh, as per your requirement. But if you are on local, then uh, I would still say uh, Docker is a good choice. And Docker and Kubernetes are different tools. So Docker, uh, as you mentioned already, Alexa, Alexa were there were containers, but Docker differentiates from Alexis. Docker runs as a container, as a process, and it does uh, it shares the same kernel's host, uh, host namespace. It doesn't create the, another uh, process for the uh, container. So if you are using Docker, then that's fine. But Kubernetes, it's something to manage your Docker containers in production. So the, the containers were already there, but when Kubernetes was launched in or open sourced in 2014, the main challenge before the container ecosystem was solved about how to manage the containers in production and Kubernetes did that. So it is called as an orchestration tool for running for running containers in production. I keep hearing about other options too. There's like Docker Swarm and a couple of other setups like it for, you know, multiple Docker setups. Have you used those? What are the trade-offs between those and something like Kubernetes? If I'm not wrong, Docker was uh, announced in 2013, uh, Kubernetes in 2014. And around that time, if you just, if you were a part of uh, observing this container ecosystems around 2014, 2015, there were a very good number of uh, orchestration tools and there, there are good tools like Docker Swarm was, uh, I think it was launched in 2015 or 2016. But before that, there was something called TumTum, which was T-U-M-T-U-M, you can pronounce it uh, as you like. So that was ported to call Docker Data Center. So Docker bought that uh, company TumTum, which was a good UI where it used to automate the workflow 
after the Docker data center was discontinued, they launched Docker Swarm. Docker Swarm uh, got a good attention being uh, orchestration tool from Docker uh, company itself. Uh, it, it was actually good. But uh, by the time in 2014, when Kubernetes was open source, I would say the community behind Kubernetes made it more adaptable. Uh, and uh, as already Google was also using it, then there is something called Aperture Mesos. If you uh, know the Mesos, uh, you can also run your containers in production using Aperture Mesos. Companies like uh, Netflix used to use it. So there are a couple of more tools. Uh, in 2014 itself, AWS came with ECS called as Elastic Container Service, Amazon service to run containers in production, but don't think that also got more customers. So there were tools, and in the meantime, a company called Rancher came up in 2014, 2015, where it used to give a nice UI to deploy to deploy the orchestration tools with multiple choice of uh, orchestration tools. It had its own framework called Cattle. Then it supported Kubernetes, Apache Mesos, and Docker Compose as well. So Docker Compose is also one of the CLI tool to run your containers for production use but docker compose is not re recommended it's not a full-fledged framework but it gets the work done instead of running docker run you just do docker compose up so there were a couple of tools or there still there are still more tools but i think uh, kubernetes has won this war uh more than i don't know the remember the name of the survey but more than 60 or 70 percent of uh, people use Kubernetes as an orchestration tool for their continued deployments. And I think success behind adapting Kubernetes is still goes to community. There are hundreds of contributors, thousands of comments. And yeah, uh, the giant companies like uh, Google, Microsoft, IBM, Red Hat, uh, the developers all working on them. And the tools came up timely when there was something that hey this is missing the kubernetes is cool but this part is missing someone will come up other day and it will be open source and i think this is how it is growing yeah it's interesting how often community plays a role in that that uh i mean i've seen this with front-end frameworks i've seen this with all kinds of other technologies and yeah it just boils down to you know what there's a huge community out there and i can get the help i need you know, whether or not it's the best technology. And it seems like people can make the case one way or the other for most things. Yeah, it just comes down to, oh, well, there, there are enough people out there to where I can get it figured out if I don't know what to do, so. Yep, and, and now with the managed services like EKS, AKS, uh, uh, and uh, one from GK. Uh, so, yeah, people, even enterprise or corporate companies uh, are adapting it. And if I'm not wrong, uh, I saw to it some other day that even Tesla is moving to Kubernetes. And yeah, I mean, this is a paradigm shift we can call. The companies which were running on mainframe are now running, are moving to containerization with Kubernetes. So yeah, th this is one of the most widely adopted containerized orchestration tool right now. So at what point, let's say that I, you know, I dockerize my app, which is kind of a thing that um, people are doing, I think, I think some people benefit from it more than others. And I'm not going to get into whether or not I think it's a great idea for every app, but, um, 
let's say that people are dockerizing their containers, at what point should they be looking at Kubernetes? I mean, if you just have one app that doesn't get a ton of traffic, are you okay just deploying a Docker container? Or, you, or know, so, you know, are you waiting on traffic? Are you waiting on, I've got, you know, 10 different microservices. How do you, how do you make that call? Yeah, I mean, it depends upon the application architecture. But uh, yeah, if your application is uh, running on traditional server with the app server with some kind of DB, and it's like, okay enough not handling much traffic, uh, and yeah, uh, coming back to the point that whether to use containerization or uh, dockerization or moving to Kubernetes, I would say that's really a tough task or tough decision to take. Uh, yeah, some, we just don't have to follow the trend if everyone else is moving to this platform or everyone else is moving to Kubernetes, let's do it. That doesn't make sense. Just uh, analyze our application need and if needed then start to uh, dockerize and yeah if you are dockerizing you should start thinking uh, designing it in a microservices way like uh, the purpose of docker or container is per process per container if you are running multiple processes in one server then if you are dockerizing you make sure that your every application process is each different container uh, and or else it will defeat the purpose of containerization. So yeah, just split the number of microservices, use the power of service discovery tools like uh, Kubernetes offers it uh, using service discovery, uh, where you can int, uh, you can connect in the cluster with just with the uh, names. So that is the one important thing where people. Uh, uh, people really enjoyed this part of service discovery with Kubernetes. And once you have microservice to architecture, then if your application is uh, handling a good traffic, then just deploy it on any managed Kubernetes cluster or self-provision it. Once you have it up and running, set up auto-scaling. Uh, so there is auto-scaling for both the Kubernetes application as well as Kubernetes clusters and it works great if you have deployed your cluster on public cloud like aws gke or azure you can set up your auto scaling let's say if your cluster is out of capacity it will automatically add nodes if your app is scaling using custom metrics auto scaling your application containers will scale automatically but if your application is i mean if just uh a monolith application with a containerization, I, will, uh, I would say it is better to check out some options like uh, uh, Fargate or GKE, where you just give a container image and that is it. So uh, containerization service is not that much famous, but yeah, there are tools or companies which provide you a service that, yeah, just give my container image and that's it, they'll run it, run it for you. So yeah, uh, while moving to containerization, you have to uh, consider a few aspects of your application and just use the right tool for right purpose. Deploy more, pay less with DigitalOcean, the simplest all-in-one cloud computing platform for developers. Scale and run cloud applications faster and more efficiently with effortless administration tools to robust compute 
flexible configurations, networking services, real-time alerts, and rapid provisioning while enjoying industry-leading price-to-performance with a flat pricing structure across all global data center regions at any usage volume. Spend more time building better web apps and less time worrying about managing infrastructure with DigitalOcean. Build your next app on DigitalOcean. Get started with a free $100 credit at do.co slash rubyrogues. So how does somebody get started with Kubernetes? <laughs> so yeah, that, that's the one of the trending questions. So I would say if uh, you are a developer, then just start, just install Minikube, containerize your application uh, while developing your code on local, use uh, Docker file, Docker image, mount your code on your Docker container from your host. And once it once the image is built, then push it to your Minikube or push it somewhere and run it with Minikube. Once you have filled, then I think once the pipeline is set up, you are all well and good. But if you are really looking into mastering the Kubernetes uh, skill sets right from zero to uh, N, then I would say there are few courses, few books. One, the very famous one from Kelsey Hightower is Kubernetes, the hardware. There are a couple of few courses on I don't remember Coursera or Udemy. I don't remember the course. Uh, those are free courses where you can learn about the Kubernetes terms and resources it is used. And I think it's fairly easy once you have grasped or if you understand the system, it's just YAML. And uh, yeah, I, I would say the practicing is, uh, is the only key. And with the managed services like Google Container Engine, where you can create your free account and and get the feel of Kubernetes. And there are some platforms like Play with Kubernetes, CatCoda, where you get to play with Kubernetes cluster for free by uh, using interactive way. And if you are coming from the background of sysadmins or DevOps, I would say then uh, for those people, it is fairly enough because they understand mostly the networking part. So it is, again, just provisioning the Kubernetes cluster, understanding how it works, the master components like keep controller, keep scheduler, uh, HCD, the heart of the Kubernetes cluster. And uh, yeah, just try and deploy your apps. And that is it. Just keep exploring. So I'm curious, Dave, it sounds like you have a, how do I put it, an amateur setup? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to say the least. Uh, so I'm curious, you know, what what's your experience just kind of, I guess, uh, muddling through this with help from the internet. Um, you know, wh where did you get stuck? So I think that a lot of the problem is that uh, there is definitely not a Kubernetes for dummy blog post out there that just tells you, here's how you do it. Install Ubuntu, this specific version, and here, just copy and paste these things into the terminal. Now you're up and running. You know, there's always been some kind of gotcha. And with my platform, it's running Minikube just because I only have one physical server that I want to divert resources to this project and I didn't have multiple. So as much as a lot of the documentation says, oh, this is a turnkey solution. I've used turnkey solutions like GitLab and that definitely is turnkey. You know, I think setting up a Kubernetes instance in your environment is anything but turnkey because you're always going to find that there's missing dependencies or there's networking issues. And once you finally do manage to get it up and running, then you have a whole nother set of issues. For example, 
uh, Minikube really wasn't meant to live on its own host. It's kind of meant to be installed on your development machine. Well, because I don't want to have my GitLab CI deploy instances to my local machine, my development machine, because it may not always stay on. I might be on another computer or whatever. You have to jump through a lot of hoops with proxying in order to get to the user interface of Kubernetes. So there's some nuances there that you may run into if you decide to go host it on yourself. Uh, the other um, strange kind of thing is that once everything looked like it was set up and working correctly, that I was able to get the proxying working on a, another non-headless server, navigate to the web UI to see everything, and then started getting connectivity issues with GitLab. And uh, there's a lot of per there's some permissions that you have to set up between GitLab and Kubernetes in order to get them talking as well. So uh, it's definitely not a you know afternoon project. If you're just diving into it, it is going to take a bit of reading and researching, Googling what your error was and stuff like that. But I think in the end, as Raul said, it is a direction that the community at large is investing heavily into. So it definitely is worth the trouble to at least become familiar with it. Well, and it sounds like it can to some degree solve some of the issues that we've had in the past with scaling and things like that, where yeah. You can set up systems where um, I have this app, I'm getting too much traffic, so it goes, oh, well, I know how to make another one of those, and so it just does. And you see, so a lot of this stuff becomes automatic or automatable. Yeah, scaling up is just adding more swap memory to your box, right? <laughs> <laughs> You're uh, evil. Sorry, that, <laughs> that's such a bad joke. Uh, but um, that does bring a point that I think uh, a lot of times when we talk about virtualization, uh, there's been a common um, fact that you don't use swap because it doesn't make much sense to use swap on a virtualized environment because you're literally just going to be hitting the hard disk and stuff. So it's better to give it enough memory. But on the counterpoint, I will say that if this is a production instance, and if you are running an application in a virtual environment, whether it's a Rails app or whatever, if you've never had the joy of experiencing what happens when a server, even a virtual server, runs out of memory, it's not pleasant, and your application can go down, as well as the rest of that box just becoming completely unresponsive. So I think that having swap enabled is a good thing as a fail-safe. You should have other metrics and monitoring enabled to know when you are actually hitting swap and getting to a certain percentage of RAM usage. But don't be scared to enable it. Personally, I say. Mm, yes, I, I think based on this comment, I would still say world is still over-provisioned. Meaning that let's say we need like uh, two gigs of memory to run our application on self side, people will the tendency of people is hey, let's assign 4GB of uh, RAM to the server so that our application can run in place. But I think uh, for the from the design point of view, uh, I still feel application must be using the resources, uh, how much it needs. Uh, so if it is needing 2GB of memory uh, for running it, 
it should be assigned to GP. And this is where Kubernetes is solving the problem as far as if we design the application in that way. Let's say we have app A deployed on Kubernetes and we assign resources to GP uh, as we have done our benchmarking and load testing earlier that yeah, our application with this X resources can handle this much of traffic. So we have deployed it, all is good, but all of a sudden at one day, the traffic comes in and we need to auto-scale. So there's something called horizontal pod auto-scaling in Kubernetes itself, where the, our application is automatically scaled. Now that traffic is more, it will add another container or another pod of 2GB automatically into the Kubernetes, uh, Kubernetes cluster and our app can serve the traffic. So I think if designed properly uh, with the well-mannered microservices architecture, scaling horizontally and vertically, I mean, horizontal, horizontally is uh, fair enough. Vertically, if you want to scale vertically, that's uh, a huge task, I would say. But yeah, if auto-scaling is a thing, I think that is more or less a solved problem as of now. And I personally feel if your application is benchmarked and load tested, then I don't think that scaling is that much issue. Yeah, especially with virtualization today, uh, scaling up, I think, provides not that much benefit if you have a solid CI-CD, really more on the CD part. I remember back in the day when we had to scale horizontally to increase from 10 servers to 30 servers, but then we had to do a deployment. There wasn't any good way to go onto each one of the 30 servers to do the deployment. Today, with continuous deployment, you have that luxury of scaling horizontally to even hundreds of servers and it not really affect your workflow or your DevOps tasks. So. Um, I think definitely scaling horizontally, provisioning enough resources on each virtual instance to not run into memory issues or whatever is definitely the way to go nowadays. Yep. And with the ecosystem at doorstep, serverless, that's the point where we'll be forgetting about all these scaling techniques. So let's assume something using... Uh, AWS, Lambda, Google Functions, or another serverless tools, what are we dealing with? Nothing to do with resources. Just push our code and with the serverless uh, frameworks, that's gone. So I think uh, uh, the time is near where we would stop worrying about our resources and scaling. Yeah, and I think the whole serverless stuff is going to really change the dynamics of developers because you're not creating monoliths anymore and you're not really, uh, I guess you are sort of creating microservices, but I think it's going to be even more kind of a micro microservices where you have hundreds of Lambda functions all working in conjunction and together to you know, do something like authentication, displaying records, updating records and stuff like that. You know, the whole concept of uh, serverless functions, Lambda, Google functions, it really kind of reminds me of stored procedures in Microsoft SQL. That you're just writing thousands of these to build your application, and then your interface is just calling those functions. Yes. So, yeah, might be the analogous with that, but yeah, still uh, pretty 
uh, early to comment anything about serverless because not every application can be ported as a serverless application but yeah uh, the uh, the community or the people are busy porting uh, more and more or making robust more and more uh, the serverless frameworks or tools where the most of the apps are ported but yeah uh, it is working in some cases the most successful framework uh, at this point we would say is uh, aws lambda there also google functions there are some third party as well like ripple where you get the multilingual support for uh, aws lambda uh, we have limited support of languages like node.js python and go uh, uh, last time i visited or i worked on lambda there was no ruby support Real support. So yeah, I, I mean it's pretty early to comment anything about serverless, but yeah, it has potential to minimize uh, or actually get out to the pain of deployments and configurations for at least few uh, applications. Yeah, but then you know, I guess the downside of the whole serverless is that if you are developers developing and then pushing code or having your deployment team pushing code to serverless functions, you have to be careful of versions. And that's something where you can get burned very easily of you guys are getting this function updated and you're getting this pushed out, but you're not updating the other necessary functions as well that's now relying on this new code. So you can run into a lot of troubles there as well. I think uh, that will come by time and uh, this is where our uh, test team and development or the or or UAT testing and all that comes into picture. But uh, more specific to origin, that's one case. But yeah, we do need to take care about dependencies and their uh, and their related models. So uh, as and when the serverless ecosystem matures, I think uh, this things will be a really a solvable problem. But yeah, we still have to wait and watch. I haven't seen a, a story, a production story where uh, someone comes and says like, hey, this is my uh, application at scale. We handle it on serverless platform. So I haven't heard that any, if you have, you obviously you can point me to, but with respect to containerization, uh, I can say there are hundreds of stories where people have demonstrated like the containerization has helped solve their problem uh, uh, up to that extent. Also, with regards to cost optimization, containerization had helped people to reduce the cost and ease the continuous deployment. Yeah, definitely. If I was going the route of serverless uh, or even microservices, having a CD to make sure that everything all the dependencies and stuff that are needed are, uh, it's crucial to have, you know, manually deploying microservices or functions. It's just asking for trouble down the road. Yep. Uh, I mean, uh, again, it's an opinionated decision and needs to be taken. uh, needs to be taken at the right point and just choose the right tool for right purpose. So, Hey, Eric, what, what gotchas have you run into with Kubernetes? Trying to spell it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> Trying to understand the acronyms. I haven't run into any gotchas because 
I have been too afraid to get involved with it. I, I really can't say beyond it, it's complex. Like for example, I, I was really excited about it. Even uh, even the Google offering when I went there to Google, and uh, you log into their console, and all of a sudden this console looks like you're you're like sitting inside of a, a seven fifty seven jet or airplane with all of these buttons everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and and to me, like you got to understand, pe- there, so there there are two different types of develop. I'm going to very much classify ourselves, right? Two types of developers: those that enjoy this kind of thing, and those that don't. The DevOps minded and the non DevOps minded. And I am extremely non DevOps minded, but I think that there is dev. I mean. But there has to be those people that are because that's why we're getting solutions like Kubernetes. That's why we have stuff like um, Nanobox and uh, Cloud66 and Heroku and all these other tools that help us manage it. Now, for me, I- I'm listening to this conversation. I apologize for not being more involved. But to me, th- what we're talking about is like if I was an arachnophobe and we're talking about spiders, right? That's kind of how I feel right now. <laughs> so yeah. I will say, though, Eric, one thing... Uh, as just a encouragement, not getting fully into DevOps, perfectly fine. I understand that and respect that you don't like that path. However, having awareness of DevOps and hosting can make you a much better developer. For example, if you need to upload avatars for users, well, as just a simple developer or a solo developer, you might say, oh, well, I'll just use Carrier Wave. What's this S3 junk? I don't know. So you just start taking uploads on your uh, local machine or your local server, but then you start scaling and growing. Now you have to add more servers. Now this function that you had of storing these images locally aren't displaying on other servers. So having some awareness uh, or best practices known uh, can really make you a better developer because you're thinking about these things before you're running into them. And I wouldn't even call it a premature optimization, just more of following, you know, better paths. I think one other thing that I'll throw out here is that, you know, Eric talked a bit about there are all these options, all these things to know about it, right? And the way he's talking about it sounds a little bit to me like somebody who's been put on a rocket and been told some of these are going to blow. Some of these buttons are going to blow up the rocket, <laughs> right? That's exactly it. But, know, don't, but we, don't push the red button and don't don't cut don't cut the wrong wire, <laughs> right? But the thing is, is it's not in production. You know, you could you could set up a, a test setup and throw stuff at it, and that's the beautiful thing about software is that if you hit the red button and you blow it up you just erase it and reinstall it. <laughs> and so, yeah. um, I, you know, I, I totally understand that feeling because I felt that before. And then I get to the point where I play with it some and I screw it up and I realize, okay, now I just have to spend a half hour reinstalling it or something, right? So I'll start the install process and I'll kind of babysit it while I go read some blog posts or something. So yeah, exactly. the stakes aren't that high until you put it into production and then hit the red button. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And when I first saw the Kubernetes dashboard, I'm like, what? <laughs> what are all of these crazy words? And, you know, I had to like Google around to find out like, what does this exactly mean? So um, the visibility is definitely not there for someone who's just tinkering with it. Um, so finding guides, blog posts, YouTube videos and stuff can really help. 
Yeah, certainly. It is not someone to just like, uh, I mean, well, for the people at least to coming from the Hiroko mindset, like, yeah, Hiroko is just, you'll find hundreds of tutorial like, get deploy your app on Hiroko in 10 minutes, in five minutes or within a minute as well. But for Kubernetes, uh, I think it is possible with up to some extent because at the end it is all YAML but uh, you'll have to get to know and understand Kubernetes terms and resources like what exactly are deployments, where uh, you will be specifying your image specification, environment variable configurations. And if you are coming from a background of using a native Docker or Docker Compose, there are some tools like Compose, uh, uh, which is uh, spelled as K-O-M-P-O-S, P-O-S-E, which will convert your Docker uh, Compose uh, YAMLs into the Kubernetes uh, deployable YAMLs. So there are tools, but yeah, certainly I would say it's a matter of interest of a person. Some people will just leave it to the ops guy. Some people will say, hey, uh, that if Kubernetes cluster is already provided, hey, let me check the YAML custom uh, YAML syntax and the configurations I can specify. And that's it. Uh, then all we have to do is kubectl apply. Uh, if not, then uh, there's something called Helm, uh, which is designed as per the chart philosophies where uh, you will find uh, hundreds of charts available for each and every application and you just do help install which is just like gem install and your uh, application is already deployed to kubernetes so yeah we'll make thoughts over here if you are non-devops guy but interested in knowing the deployment workflow with kubernetes uh, it is not that much hard you just spend some time and um, but yeah if someone is there who haven't done who haven't done ssh in in his life then that comes a difficult part for it like uh, he's uh, uh, i mean we can say he has never ssh into server or haven't deal with server then understanding kubernetes directly is a big thing for him so just considering the uh, kind of person trying to jump into this ecosystem matters a lot. If someone is ops guy with few years of experience, it's just a matter of hours for him to uh, get chipped in. One thing that I'm curious, you know, we, we've talked a lot, I think, about the benefits and kind of how Kubernetes works, but what DevOps processes have you set up around around Kubernetes? Like, within the, the scope of Okay, I've got these apps, and I'm I'm doing these things with Kubernetes. Um, I think Dave might have mentioned CI or CD, um, and then you've got deployments, and I don't even know what else. So, so what kinds of processes do you set up around Kubernetes to make your life easier with it? Yep, I think DevOps process or philosophy will still remain the same. Like there are few. Uh, a few blocks in your DevOps architecture like uh, continuous integration, continuous deployment will still remember, uh, will still remain the same. But what changed is deployment flow. So earlier, if uh, before containerization, what was the strategy? You would be deploying your application to servers running on public cloud or private cloud where you will be managing tens or hundreds of servers using some configuration tool like maybe Chef 
Puppet or Salt Stack or using just bare bash scripts. So if you want to deploy, uh, set up a DevOps pipeline or continuous integration or deployment pipeline, it's same with Kubernetes as well. But what it used is interoperability and portability. Let's say I was doing something or before containerization, I was deploying some app on AWS with the configuration management tool like Terraform or Ansible. And with bare metal, if I want to do that, uh, my playbooks or cookbooks or my Terraform scripts will still work, but I'll have to port it specific to some other configurations. But with Kubernetes, once you have your YAML or your Helm chart ready, all you need is the access to Kubernetes cluster. Let's say uh, one fine day uh, you decided to move out from AWS to your self-hosted Kubernetes cluster. What you have to do is, all you have to do is just get a Kubernetes API server access or kubeconfig access and do kubectl apply with all your templates. All the services within a minute will be up on your uh, Kubernetes cluster, which is hosted elsewhere. So the tagline with containerization like build, ship, and run anywhere seems to be coming true at the moment. And that is one thing. And most of the things like uh, dependency. So if you find there were a few long stories like, hey, on this cloud provider with this AMI or this image, this package is broken. This is something. And that was, it seemed like they're not a big issue, but that was that was a huge pain while automating our uh, systems in thousands of servers. So that was still a big issue. With this, hey, if one of the images, container images out, that fixes everything overall. So, and of course, the time uh, uh, for continuous deployment is being reduced. Uh, the credit goes to microservice uh, services architecture over there. And this has really said, uh, I would say the response time from ops people or from the system itself is now very minimized and it is helping out to uh, customers or users to uh, deploy and debug applications faster. Anything else we should dive into before we get to picks? So we'll go ahead and do some picks. Before we do that, though, Rahul, if people want to find you online, where do they go? Yeah, I think uh, Twitter is the first choice where I'm mostly active. Uh, Rahul underscore Mahale is my Twitter ID. And uh, yeah, that's the best way to reach out with me quickly. But yeah, uh, we do blog frequently with our use cases and studies. So do visit blog.bigbinary.com and follow Big Binary on Twitter. Also, you can reach out to us at hello at bigbinary.com or reach out to me personally on rahul at slash rahul.in. All right, cool. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Is your job search stuck? Maybe you're not getting any interviews with employers, or maybe you are, but no job offers. Or you may be new and not even know where to start. This is Charles Maxwood, and I'm releasing a new course and ebook on how to find a job as a software developer. The course walks you through the process of finding the types of companies you want to work for, getting their attention, and putting your best foot forward as the candidate they want. I've coached dozens of developers in looking for jobs and have been able to help several people find jobs within two weeks to two months. So whether you're new to development, can't find a great job that fits what you want, or are looking for remote work from an area without a strong tech community, I can help. Go to getacoderjob.com and sign up today. Eric, do you have some picks for us? 
I think I'm going to pick a couple of uh, the, the web apps that I've spoken about earlier. As I said, I've, I'm the type of guy who likes to follow the path of least resistance, especially when it comes to DevOps. So uh, for about five years, I was an active user of Cloud66, and they provide a pretty awesome tooling. They're, they're a, a less expensive version of Heroku or any of those platforms and enable you to be able to deploy applications, especially Ruby and Rails applications. They, they shine in that area. So uh, for a long time, I would have my applications sitting on DigitalOcean and they would be deployed through uh, Cloud66. Now, Cloud66 handles your backups. They handle your database backups. They handle your deploy notifications. It's just a lot of really cool tools that they offer. Nanobox is very similar. They have really good deployment solutions that follow more of the Kubernetes angle. And they they provide support for Elixir apps and, and a bunch of different types of apps. And I think they're here locally in Utah. So uh, shout out to them, um, nanobox.com. Those are my two picks. Awesome. Dave, what are your picks? So in spirit of having servers in the basement, I'm going to have to pick a, a company that I've ordered servers from. And it's orangecomputers.com. I guess they're out on the West Coast, but you can get some rack servers that are pretty beefy, like a um, dual processor, quad core or six core, 24 gigs of RAM, couple of, you know, 300 gig hard drives for like $250, you know, plus shipping. So, I mean, that's a pretty good deal to get a server to start tinkering around with. But they are very heavy and very loud. So, you know, try to have a basement or a padded closet. <laughs> Put your servers in a padded room. <laughs> <laughs> I've had servers like that. Awesome. Uh, I'm going to jump in here with a couple of picks. One is, I think it's interesting that we're talking about this, the week of VMworld, which is uh, in Las Vegas this week. I got an invitation to go, but I didn't. Anyway, they have a whole bunch of folks down there and, you know, talk about Docker and things like that. It's, it's a VMware conference, but it's, they've got a lot of interesting stuff going on. I'm going to jump in with a couple of picks. One is is uh, I found a new game on my phone. <laughs> yes, I'm addicted to my phone. Um, and uh, it's called Terragenesis. And it's a terraforming game, so you terraform planets. Um, I've already managed to terraform Mars. And uh, yeah, anyway, so I'm working on Venus at this point. It's just something that kind of uh, keep my hand, keeps my hands busy sometimes when I'm idle. And sometimes it keeps my brain idle when I shouldn't be. So I will uh, fess up to that. Um, one other thing that I'm going to pick, and this is a book that I just listened to, it's called The One Thing. And uh, it just talks about focusing on one thing and getting it done until you're successful. Uh, incidentally, John Lee Dumas, who does Entrepreneur on Fire, he says focus is, anyway, focus is an acronym. And I can't remember what he says, but follow one course until success. That's what it is. So you know, kind of the same idea where if you can pare down your success to just one thing to focus on for now, you're able to get that done. And I found that at least for me, uh, that is very true. So if I can just buckle down and say, okay, I'm going to work on this thing, then I find that I'm pretty successful at that thing. So anyway, uh, those are my picks. Uh, Rahul, what are your picks? Yeah. So being in the ecosystem of containers and working mostly throughout my career into the DevOps projects, I still think there's a lot more scope left for automation and bringing the 
are in fact bridging the gap between devs and ops. So I would say uh, it doesn't matter if the tool is Kubernetes, Docker, or some other uh, tool. What it matters is uh, we just have to get it done the way we want and do it as much responsive as we want. So Kubernetes is one tool, and if some something else comes up, uh, people or community should be able to uh, accept it the way it accepted Kubernetes and Docker. But yeah, having said that, Kubernetes has revolutionized the container ecosystem. Um, that is notable, and uh, it's playing the buzz right now with the likes of serverless coming at the doorstep. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming and uh, sharing your expertise with us. Uh, do you want to remind people where they can get your podcast? I run a show called All Things DevOps.BigBinary.com. That's a bi-weekly podcast where I kept talking to the persons in Kubernetes ecosystem who have been working uh, in the same domain for and doing a quite a good, impressive work over there. So yeah, just follow all things jobs.bigpanay.com. Awesome. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this up. Thanks everyone for coming and we will be back next week. Talk to you later. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.